Well, the Christmas season is on us, isn't it? Uh, we, we weren't ready. I haven't heard anybody yet say, I thought it would never get here. Everybody I've talked to, all the adults, all the adults that I've talked to have said, I can't believe it's Christmas already. And uh, makes me wonder, have you gotten any Christmas cards yet? Not yet, okay. Well, we've gotten one already. Uh, I, not that that makes us better than you, but uh, just to let you know. Uh, Christmas cards are always fascinate me. They come in all kinds of, of types and shapes and sizes. And I remember in years past seeing some that showed the manger scene, you know, and, and you'd have the manger scene. And, and first of all, it was a bright, clean manger with you know, glowing light all around it. Obviously done by somebody who's never, ever been in, in, a, in a barn. Uh, you know, they know that it doesn't look like that. Uh, but gathered around uh, the baby Jesus there, of course, is Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds and the angels and some farm animals and depending on the maker of the card, maybe the little drummer boy and Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and Santa Claus and maybe Elvis. And um, I've never seen the Elvis one, but I wouldn't be surprised, but... You just see them all there, all together, you know, and, and you think, well, that must have been what it was like. Uh, but uh, I doubt that it was. It makes me glad we're not dependent on Hallmark for our information about Jesus' birth. And in fact, we actually have two accounts of his birth, one in the Gospel of Matthew, one in the Gospel of Luke, and they complement one another. They don't all tell exactly the same thing. And they complement one another so that we end up with quite a bit of information about the birth of our Savior. But because of the popular folklore, we sometimes get a little confused about what actually took place uh, when Jesus was born. And so for the next uh, four Sundays, counting today, leading up to Christmas, uh, I want us to see what the Scripture tells us about Jesus' birth, especially by looking at the people who were involved in the birth of Jesus, because these were real people. We need to understand that. This is not mythology. This is not once upon a time. This is not talking about ideas or ideal people. These are real people, and because they were real people who were involved in Jesus' birth, there should be much for them to teach us, and I believe there is. So we want to start this morning with the wise men and think about them. I want to think, first of all, about what we do know about the wise men and what we don't know about the wise men. First of all, we know the wise men were not there when Jesus was born. Okay, uh, I, I pointed that out one time in one of my classes at VCU, and afterward one of my students said, you've just ruined Christmas for me. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sorry, but you know, hopefully you'll have a more realistic understanding of it. But they weren't there, uh, and they weren't there shortly after Jesus was born uh, either. Look at Matthew chapter 2 and uh, verse 1. It says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, they saw this star. It doesn't say how long afterward. It just says after he was born. So they weren't there when he was born. Chapter 2 and verse 2 uh, says that this star uh, sounds like it apparently appeared uh, when, uh, when he was born, but then they had to travel from the east. Now, we don't know how far east, but I'm going to say this right now and then explain it a little bit later. I think all the way from Babylon or possibly Persia, and that's a long way from there to Judea. So they had to make a long trip 
probably took weeks, if not months, for them to get there uh, to where Jesus was. Uh, and then also notice verses 8 and 9 and 11 that Jesus is referred to not as a baby or an infant, but as a child. Now, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2 and verse 12, he's called an infant. Uh, but that's before they get there. So by the time they get there, he's referred to not as an infant or a baby, but as a child. And then notice, too, in verse 16 of chapter 2, that after they left, Herod ordered the murder of all the, the male children two years old and under. Now, if he'd just been born, there wouldn't have been any need to go all the way up to two years old. But Herod didn't know exactly when he been, had been born, but he knew it could have been as long as two years before. And so he ordered the uh, execution of the murder of all the babies two years old and under. And so Jesus may have been almost two by the time that the wise men arrived on the scene. So we know they weren't there at the time that he was born. We also know that they were not kings. There's an old hymn, we three kings of Orient are, you know, and uh, we see them pictured wearing crowns, you know, and uh, robes and all this kind of thing. But... Uh, that's uh, the origin of that idea isn't certain, but it's certainly not from Scripture. We have no nothing to indicate that they were kings. The idea probably comes from the fact that they brought such rich gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But there were rich folk around uh, who were not kings, and so there's no reason to label them as kings. We also don't know how many there were. Uh, we always talk about the what? Three wise men, but... We don't know that. Where does that come from? It, again, comes from the three gifts. And we assume that one of them brought gold, one of them bought frankincense, and one of them bought myrrh. When in the reality, one of them may have been broken, didn't bring anything, and one of them brought a double portion of, of frankincense or something. We don't know. So we don't know how many there were. There could have been three, four, five, two. Uh, all we know is that there were multiple of them, but we don't know how many, but they did bring three gifts. We also know that they were not Jews, but they were Gentiles. In Greek, they are called magoi. And, and a magos in Greek uh, was the, the, the word used to describe a sorcerer or an astrologer. And there were lots of these folks in the ancient world, and this is the word that was used to describe them. We get our word magic from it. And you'll notice in the NIV, if you're reading the NIV, it calls them the magi. All right, uh, which is better really than calling them the wise men. That's kind of a uh, roundabout interpretation of uh, who they were. But most likely they were astrologers. And the observance of the stars that they were doing suggests that that's exactly what they were. They were exactly what that word usually meant uh, in the Greek language. They were magoi in every sense of the word because they were, they were stargazing and they were interpreting things by the stars. That's what astrologers uh, do. Uh, now, Jews didn't usually practice astrology, and so that would suggest that they were Gentiles. Also, when they came, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, as though that doesn't include them, as though they are not Jews, right? So they were apparently not Jews, but they were Gentiles. They were most likely Babylonian or Persian. I mentioned that earlier. Why? Because astrology was widely practiced 
in Persia and in Babylon. If you read the book of Daniel, remember that a couple of times Daniel summons all of his wise men, all of his enchanters, his magicians, his astrologers to tell him to interpret, uh, help him interpret his dreams. And they, of course, can't do it uh, because they are fakes. Uh, but uh, that's who these people were. And so these people very likely came from Babylon or from Persia. We do know also they came to worship Jesus. And that perhaps is the most important thing about them. In verses chapter 2, uh, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 8, they've said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And and Herod said, when you find him, come and tell me so that I too may come and worship him. They were there because they wanted to worship this newborn king. But have you ever wondered why? Why would these Gentile astrologers, people from so far away, people who are not even Jewish, why would they care? Why would they want to worship a Jewish king? Why are they even in the story anyway? What does their presence here tell us? Well, I think they're in the story because, uh, first of all, they were a real part of what happened. But secondly, because they foreshadowed something. They foreshadowed the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. When Jesus told the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always to the close of the age. They're part of that all nations. They foreshadow all the Gentiles, the, the vast multitude of Gentiles who over time have come to worship and to follow Jesus. They were the first Gentiles to worship Jesus. And as such, they foreshadow you and me. They are our kinfolk in that regard. They were the first Gentiles to come and worship the Savior. And that's why they're in the story. Well, that's what we know about them and some things we don't know about them, but what can we learn from them? What can we learn from the fact that they were looking for the king? That's what the story's about. They came from the east looking for the king. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, they asked. They want to know that. They want to worship him. Here's what I think we can learn from them, first of all, from the fact that they came from a long way off, but they found Jesus. This is a remarkable story. They didn't have GPS to help them get there. In fact, if they'd had GPS, they might have ended up in Cleveland or somewhere, uh, you know, because it doesn't always send you in the right direction, does it? But they didn't have anything like that. They didn't have a map. They didn't have a guidebook. They didn't have anything to tell them exactly where to find this child. They were coming from a long way off. They came from a long way off geographically. Verse 1 of chapter 2 simply says they came from the east, somewhere in that vast area beyond the Jordan River. And that must have been a long, very difficult, perhaps even dangerous trip for them to make. But they made it because they wanted to find the Savior. They came from a long way off ethnically, and yet they came to worship a Jewish king. Have you ever wondered what it was about the star that compelled them to come and find a Jewish king? How did they know from that, from looking at a star, 
How was that revealed to them that this says something about a new king who's been born in Judea, that there's a baby in Judea who's been born king of the Jews? What told them that? We really don't know. Uh, we don't know what compelled them to come to see Jesus, but think of what a large leap it must have been for them. They are Gentile astrologers, and yet somehow they come into the long story of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who is now in the process of fulfilling his covenant that he made with his servant Abraham and, and providing a blessing for all the nations through this child who is being born. They've come a long, long way in order to find Jesus, and they do. And they were a long way off spiritually. They undoubtedly were pagans, and yet they seem to have accepted the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What an enormous spiritual leap that is. You talk about a conversion. By conversion, we mean a change. A change in thinking, a change in beliefs, a change in what becomes central to you. These men made one of the most amazing conversions of all time in coming from their pagan background to find the Savior. And the great thing about that is it assures us that nobody Nobody is ever too far away to find Jesus. Nobody's too far away to come to him. I think sometimes we think some people are because they're just so sinful, or they think they are because they're just so sinful. But the truth is nobody's ever too far away to find the Savior. Some people think, well, I could never find him because he wouldn't want me because he wouldn't want me because of my sins. And yet saving sinners is exactly the reason why he came. Back up into chapter 1 of Matthew and look at verse 21. He was to be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus is the, uh, the Greek form of the, the Hebrew name Yehoshua, which we usually translate as Joshua. But Yehoshua means the Lord saves. So name this baby the Lord saves because he's going to save his people from their sins. That's why he came, and that's why nobody is too far off. You see, before he came, the whole world was too far off. But now that he has come, nobody is. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul said the saying is true and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. And then he added this, of whom I am the worst. Of whom I am the worst. You know why that's important? Because it means that nobody, nobody ever has surpassed Paul in sinfulness. You've never surpassed Paul in sinfulness. I don't know what you might have done in your life, but you haven't surpassed Paul. Because he says under the inspiration of God's Spirit that he is the worst of sinners. You may have done things in your life that keep you awake at night. You may have committed sins in your life that, that trouble you every day that you live. But you need to understand that if God would save the worst of sinners, he'll save you. And that's why Jesus came into the world. You're not too far away because of your sins. Some people think, well, I'm too far away because of my religious background. Maybe you came from a culture that doesn't even recognize Jesus at all or or maybe a culture that's hostile toward him. 
Or maybe it wasn't your culture at all. Maybe it was just your family. Maybe your family did not, uh, your family environment did not give you any faith at all, didn't give you any religious convictions at all, didn't teach you anything about Jesus at all, and you're just kind of a blank slate where Jesus is concerned, and you just don't know. I remember how many times when I was teaching, the students would come to me kind of nervously at the beginning of a semester and say, I don't know how I'm going to do in this class because I don't have any religious background at all. I've never been to church a single time in my life. That's amazing, isn't it, right here in America? Never been, never been to church a single time in my life. Never read the Bible in my life. Never had a Bible in my hands, some of them said. And they were afraid that they weren't going to be able to pass the course. Some folks think that because of that kind of background that they can't find the Savior. But you're never too far away. The wise men couldn't have come from a background more opposite to that of, of a Jewish king. They couldn't have been any further away when it came to their background and their beliefs. Besides, the New Testament gives us examples of other people who came to Jesus from a long way off. Acts 16 tells us about that jailer in Philippi, you know, who had Paul and Silas in, in, in his care, in his prison. You remember how different he was? The Bible says that toward midnight, Paul and Silas were singing and praying to God. And what's the jailer doing? Anybody remember? Sleeping. sleeping. Some of you need to read your Bible. Acts 16, he was sleeping. He was sleeping. He didn't care about this Jesus they worshiped. He didn't care about the God that they followed. He's a Gentile. He's a pagan. But all of a sudden, things changed for him. And he became a follower of Jesus in one night. He made that journey in one night. He made that journey from not knowing anything about Jesus, from a culture that didn't follow Jesus, from a religious background that knew nothing of Jesus, from a background of sin. And he found the Savior within one night. So no matter who you are or how far you're coming from or what you've done, you're not too far away to find Jesus. And you know why? The answer is because he wants you to find him. You see, before Scripture started telling us about how we can find him, it told us about what he has done to find us. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let me tell you something, folks. There is no further journey anybody can make than being with God and becoming flesh. You can't travel any further than that. I don't even know how to illustrate it. I've heard people try. I've heard people say, think about a person becoming a grasshopper, but I don't think that begins to get it. To think about being God and being in the presence of deity and being deity yourself and then becoming flesh. Look how far he's come to save you. Paul marveled at it in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. He said, to have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, something to be held on to at all costs, but he emptied himself. And he took the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
See, he came all that way to find you. And that's why you can find him. He wants you to find him. But just as it was with the wise men, finding him is going to take some effort on your part. It's going to require that you make your own journey. I wish I knew how it was that the star led the wise men to conclude that there was a new Jewish king, but I don't. I don't have any idea. I don't know what about that star told them that. I don't know what, what led them that way. I don't know what made them think. If we follow this star, we'll, we'll find him. We'll know who he is. We'll find out more about him. But it was just enough to motivate them to go to Judea, which was logical if you're looking for the king of the Jews. So they, they were motivated to go to Judea. But then what did they do? They asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Scripture supplied part of the answer for them. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Bethlehem in Judea. And so they know to go to Bethlehem. And then the star kicks in again. And somehow the star guides them to the very spot where the child is. I don't know how that works either because I've never seen a, spa, a star that would point you to your house. You know, the direction given by a star is a little more general than that usually. But somehow the star pinpoints for them the location of Jesus. And they, they went there. They followed that. So they made the long journey from the east uh, following what light they had, they asked, and they got some more light from Scripture, and they went to Bethlehem, and then the star came into the story again and into the scene and, and guided them to the very spot where Jesus was. But here's the thing. They had to be willing to follow it, didn't they? They had to be willing to follow it. No matter what the star had revealed to them or what God had revealed to them through the star when they were in the east, wouldn't have done any good if they hadn't followed it. They hadn't gone to Judea. And when they got to Judea, it wouldn't have done any good if they hadn't asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And it wouldn't have done any good if they hadn't been willing to listen when they were told, well, these scriptures, which were not their scriptures, says in Bethlehem, and then they were willing to make the journey to Bethlehem and then to see that star again and be led to the very spot. They had to be willing to put forth the effort to follow the light that they had. You see, they did not remain content with the light they had. They followed the light they had until it brought them to the king. You know what most folks do today? I think everybody's got some light. I really do. I think everybody's got some light. What kind of light do people have? Well, they, they, they may have a Bible in their home and they need to read it. They may have Christian neighbors or friends, but they need to talk to them. They need to listen to them. They may live just down the road from church, but they need to go to church. But they don't put forth the effort. You know what most people do? They do this. They, they say, well, you know, I thought about it, and just I think one religion is as good as another. You know what that really says? It says they really haven't thought about it, because if they thought about it, they'd know better than that. When people say that they believe that all religions are equally valid, you know what they're really saying? That they believe they're all equally invalid. That there's no truth in any of them because there are conflicting truth claims among various religions. But people just sort of opt into this cop-out mode 
of thinking, well, you know, just one's as good as another, and they're all alike, and so I don't need anything from any of them. And in other words, what's happened is they, they are too lazy intellectually, spiritually, to make the journey. They just don't want to make the journey. If they wanted to make the journey, they wouldn't be thinking that. They would find him who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the light of the world. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what light you came here with today. I don't know out of what darkness you may be coming or where you may presently be living. But I know, do know this. I'm confident that you can take whatever light you already have, including being here today and hearing this about Jesus, you can take whatever light you have and wherever you are now and you can become a follower of the Christ just like the wise men did. Here's the question. Are you willing? Are you willing to follow the light and follow that light till it leads you to the light of the world? Are you willing to acknowledge your need for him? Are you willing to make the journey from whatever you formerly thought or believed to what you need to believe about Jesus as your Savior? It may not be easy. It may be a hard journey for you. But are you willing to do it? Are you willing to openly confess your faith in Jesus as God's Son and, and to be baptized into union with him? And are you willing to live for him? That's a journey. Are you willing to make the journey of the Christian life until he returns to take you home? to be with him forever. You can do all of that today. You can stop seeking and you can find him. And if you're ready to do that today, just come and tell us. We'll help you the rest of the way. Let's stand together.